1: Gee, thank you all so much for coming. Some of you, thank you all so much for coming. Can you hear me? Yes. Some of you drove a long way to be here and I see dear friends and I'm very grateful to you. Um, and thank you Skylight for hosting. This is my miracle book. It almost didn't get written like my miracle baby. I first wrote about Rainey in another book called Normal People Don't Live Like This, where she was bullying a girl named Leah Levinson. And, and I forgot my reading glasses. No, you brought them, don't. I brought them, <laughs> but they're in my bag. <laughs> I am. Anyway, she's bullying this girl named Leah Levinson and I needed to find out why she was a bully. So I gave her her own story called Jazz. And in Jazz, she's pinned to the ground in Central Park in the dark by her father's best friend and she wants to escape. He's 39, she's 13, and she's feeling all her powers, even though she wants to get out of there. He's in control, he's out of control, and she's mesmerized by this. And then I stopped writing about her. The book went back to being about Leah Levinson, and I give the manuscript at the end to my mentor and teacher and dear friend, Jim Crusoe, who is here tonight. And he says, I think you need another Rainey Royal story for balance. And I thought, I think I need a book. I have this big birthday coming up and I, I really need to get a book out. And my, my agent and I find a publisher and we get the book out. And then readers began to ask me why does Rainey Royal, after the first two stories, drop off the face of the planet? Is she ever going to get her own book? And I thought, no, she's not going to get her own book because I'm going to write about Typhoid Mary. (laughs) I had become obsessed with Typhoid Mary. I got a grant to study her and research her, and I found proof in her biographer's files that she had reason to believe that she was completely innocent of spreading typhoid. She was, in fact, um, guilty of spreading typhoid. And I spent four years researching and writing her story and at the end of four years I had 80 pages which is not a lot and they were not very good
0: <laughs>
1: and I, I decided I needed a break and I took a break and I wrote one rainy story and I took the 80 pages on Typhoid Mary and I took the 15 pages on Rainy Royal to an editor I trusted and I said what have I got and he said well somewhere in here you've got a book on Typhoid Mary but this is not that book but you've definitely got something on Rainy Royal and that's what you should be writing. And in about the next 16 months I pulled that book out of myself with the help of a lot of very good trusted readers, which is the fastest I've ever pulled a book out of myself and probably ever will. So what I want to read you tonight is part of the opening chapter which is called Let Her Come Dancing All of Fire. The patron saint against temptation sits straight-backed in an Italian convent as if mortised into her chair, and she is dead, dead, dead. Her name is Saint Catherine of Bologna, and nuns have been lighting candles at her feet since Columbus asked Isabella for their ships. Rainy Royal, in the reading room of the New York Public Library, peers at the photo in the book so closely she can smell the paper. Her shiny hair spills over the page. St. Catherine is not just about temptation, she's the patroness of artists for Christ's sake, just what Rainey needs. She thinks they could be sisters 500 years apart. Rainey is an artist and she embodies temptation. Wisps of smoke from centuries of candles, she reads, have stained St. Catherine's hands and face mahogany. In the photo, the saint wears a a gargantuan habit, her nut nut colored fingers laced in her lap. Rainy wears a halter top and holds a dry clay egg in one hand and a silver teaspoon in the other. While she reads, she burnishes the egg with the back of the spoon on her lap. In her mind, Rainy lifts the musty black fabric. She looks up St. Catherine's legs. She sees this, not an old lady's crinkles, but the lucent flesh of a 14-year-old virgin. One morning, Kath walked out on her rich foster family with its tutors and grooms and offered herself to the nuns. In the cloister, Kath will never listen at night for the marquis padding toward her through chilled marble halls. Why Kath endured that setup at all is because her own father sent her there to serve the marquis's daughter. There's always a man, right? So there's always a problem in the house. It is October 1972, and the problem in Rainey's house is Gordy, who tucks her in. Gordy is the best friend of her father, Howard. She remembers this, hugging her knees on the stairs one night, listening to the grown ups in the Greenwich Village townhouse where she was born and where Gordy has lived forever. Her mother, Linda, came and went from both bedrooms without embarrassment, so Rainey grew up thinking all married ladies had sleepovers. Downstairs that evening her father said, Gordy and I share everything. And then a pause, and Howard's voice again lower, a tone she understood even before kindergarten. Except for the Steinway, my friend, everything. And then rising laughter. No one wrote anything about Kath's mother in the book. No one talks about Linda Royal either, even when Rainey asks. In the library, she reads how Kath and the Marquis's daughter grew up studying at the same table. When Kath walked behind her mistress in the gardens, their silk gowns swished like running water. That's because Kath was given the daughter's lavish hand-me-downs with barely yellowed armpits. Rainey can see it. Plus, Kath got unlimited paper and inks, being good at painting animals and the faces of saints. I found her, said Rainy, causing all the library people at the long table to look up. With precise little bursts, she rips out the page on St. Cath. The woman across from her, tracing a map onto onion skin, yelps. Oh, relax, says Rainy. She packs up her egg and her spoon on the folded page and strides down the staircase and out into an autumn rain. Rainy is 14. Just a girl trying to get from the entry hall of the townhouse to her pink room on the third floor when her father, Howard, thumps the sofa in that sit-down baby way. She stops, rain-soaked in the foyer. The place is too quiet, not an acolyte in sight. Did he send them upstairs to their own rooms or out for pizza? Usually, the first floor is packed with young musicians. Some are students, some strays, but Howard Royal only brings home the best. Three days ago, he found two brilliant cellist chicks. Found, thinks Rainey, like shining orphans. The girls have been ensconced in his bedroom, like he's really going to jam with cellos. Half the acolytes are guys who supply part-time money and part-time girlfriends and revere Howard in an appropriately oblique manner. When someone new shows up, they say things like, what's your axe, baby? But half are girls who play celestial music and give celestial blowjobs and can't believe they get to jam and party and live in the extra bedrooms of, oh my God, Howard Royal. Rainey hasn't heard the place this silent in centuries. Howard's at one end of the parlor sofa, clamping a beer between socked feet and a clarinet between his knees. He's adjusting the reed. Come here, baby, he says. Isn't it amazing? We're alone. On West 10th Street, alone means three people, Rainey, her father, and Gordy, who lounges on the far sofa arm, refractive as a patch of snow, from his long milk-colored hair to his alabaster hands. His jeans are white too, and he parks a damp white cad on the upholstery. Gordy Vine is not, and never has been, an acolyte. He is a horn player, and the best musical technician in the house. Even Howard says it, but Howard has the charisma. Gordy claims to be albino, but his eyes are green. He pretends to be unaware of Rainey by keeping his head down. He pretends he is not getting sidewalk crud on the brocade. He pretends to edit penciled notes in a spiral-bound score. He turned 39 last month. Rainey shifts in the foyer. What? She has a stolen saint in her backpack. Her egg is stolen too. It is supposed to live on the studio art sill at school. She holds out her arms to show the damage she will do the upholstery. I'm soaking wet. She regrets this instantly. Gordy's attention like a draft from a threshold wafts toward her. He doesn't even have to raise his head. Howard blows on the clarinet's mouthpiece, looks puzzled and says, sounds like fish frying. Not much about her father's jazz makes sense to Rainey. Get your shoe off Lala's sofa, she says. Lala is Howard's mother. She owns the house, but she lives in an old folks home uptown. Some days, Rainy can talk to Gordy any way she wants. Gordy smiles. The kid remains. Rainy, he says softly. Even his voice sounds albino. Rainy thinks of white plaster walls licked by the painter's brush. I sent the acolytes out to collect sounds, says Howard, as if sounds were were lost quarters that winked from gutters. Sit, daughter. She drops her pack, collaborates noisily with a folding chair in the parlor, and sits on it backward while Howard watches with pleased amusement. She smells his body oil, sandalwood. That school psychologist called again today, he says, but I think she's on the wrong track. What do you think? Rainy flinches and looks to the ceiling cherubs for strength. The ceiling cherubs are three plaster angels who cavort around a trio of bare bulbs. Their axe used to be the chandelier, But last month, Sotheby's Park Binet took it away. The house is shedding its sweetest parts, like lost earrings. In return, electricity keeps humming, pizzas keep arriving, and Rainy keeps going to urban day. Are we getting a new chandelier? Do you know why the school psychologist called again? No. Rainy stares off into the kitchen, willing the refrigerator to disgorge a glass of milk. I think you do. She's full of shit. Can I go now? Look at me, daughter. He smiles as if indulging her. It's important to be candid about these things. Gordy's not looking at her is now so intense he might as well shine flashlights in her eyes. Howard and the smile persist. So tell us why the school psychologist is talking about you engaging with the male teachers. The school psychologist always peels and eats an orange while she and Rainey talk the scent comes back to Rainey in a rush. It is the scent of denial, the innocence that slides over her when Florence, the psychologist, asks how she feels about her mother, her father, the torments she dreams up for that Levinson girl. Extricating herself gracefully from a straddled folding chair could be problematic. Screw you. She knocks over the folding chair as she stands and elbows one of the new cellos, so she barely has to hear her father say under the clatter, Oh, you can do better than your old dad. Sometimes Rainy has to share her room, a ginger operation, a kind of Howard trick. It is one year after the onset of the blue and white pills. They are prescription, but Howard Royal gets them from a doctor friend and dispenses them daily from packs of 28. Rainy doesn't need them, but he doesn't believe her. Three weeks white, one week blue, he gives her one every morning with a glass of milk and waits until she swallows. He says things like, that's my girl, and because sweetheart, with maturity comes responsibility. And it is a year after the summer of Jean-Luc Ponty, when her father had Gordy take her one night to hear Ponty play in Central Park, and Gordy steered her under some trees. She was still 13. You radiate power and light, Gordy told her on the grass but he is always saying shit like that. It is the only time he lost control and they still didn't go all the way. It is 4 p.m. on a Friday and Rainey takes a savage bite of Gordy's grilled cheese. He has been making grilled cheese the way she likes it and rice pudding and chocolate egg creams for as long as she remembers. Howard smiles her up and down. Sweetheart, your room. Tina is sleeping over Friday and Saturday in my room. Tina is Rainey's best friend. They smoke pot on the roof and take turns reading Howard's pornography aloud to each other. Rainey is positive her mother, whose cool elegance she remembers as seeming somehow beyond sex, never read these books. Then Sunday, says Howard, my brilliant young cellists are in need of your floor. Just for a few days, open your heart. She has seen the new cellists, always together, giggling on the stairs or leaving Howard's room. They could be sisters, their faces like two porcelain cups, but one girl is shaped like a cello, and one more like a bow. My heart, says Rainey, my heart is a cell in which candles burn at the feet of St. Catherine of Bologna. Language is the only turf on which she can stand with her father and joust. Occasionally it works. Well then, I pity you, says Howard. When the fuck do I get my privacy back, says Rainey? When am I supposed to do my homework? what she really wants to know is, where is the place beneath the girl's armpit that the back ends and the side begins? She can share her pink room with strangers, but tell her this. Is there a region between back and breast that can, in a proper back rub, be considered neutral? Be creative, says Howard. What if it doesn't feel neutral? Be creative and be adaptable. Gordy says nothing. His language with Rainey is often nonverbal. For example, the way he has been tucking her in in the past couple of years, sitting on the edge of her bed without moving, and sometimes stroking her long hair as if he were the father and she were the little girl. The hair stroking makes her feel so porous and ashamed that she pretends to be asleep. She has no idea if Howard knows. He sleeps on the second floor and Gordy and Rainey share the third. What would Howard even say? He strokes your hair and? She wonders if Linda knew before she left last year. Gordy never says it is a secret, yet she senses that her silence is required. She has not told anyone but Tina. Often she wishes that she had not. Rainy would like to ask Tina a few things when she comes over, though she won't. For example, do Tina's body parts meet clearly at dotted lines, like pink and green states on a gas station map? Where does she get her God-given ability to not give a fuck? And, what can Rainy draw from Kath's first miracle, performed after death and underground? The nun's corpse exuded a scent so sweet and strong it rose through the soil and drew all of Bologna to her grave. Rainy can see it. Every morning, men and women gather at the mound of earth, inhale deeply, and drop to their knees. All day the perfume clings to them. The grave smells like tea rose oil. No, the priest says, what you smell is Easter lily, the flower of Christ, but he is wrong. It's tea rose, the scent of power and coiled up sex, an oily perfume in a little brown bottle. It's the perfume mothers leave behind when they split. The daughters rub between their toes to someday drive men wild. And after 18 days, according to the book, the mourners get kind of manic. They love and desire their dead sweet smelling virgins even more than they hate and desire whores. They have to see, so they dig her up. The women and girls dig very carefully, scraping with silver spoons. I'll stop there. Thank you so much. I'm happy to take questions. I
0: have a question. You know, I've known this book for a while. Where did you get her name?
1: I have no memory of it, Just but her name her name helped propel me through the writing of the book. Um, it was a very magnetic thing for me, but I have no memory of coming up with this name whatsoever. I wish I did.
0: Did you know she was brainy before she was royal? I mean, did, you, did they come together? Or did, how did that, the, the relationship between the first and last name, did it all come together?
1: I wish I remembered this, David. <laughs> it's making me crazy that I don't remember it. I just know that the name was, was a magical thing when I was writing, it was the perfect name. It's the best name I've ever come mm-hmm. up with. And stories and layers and complexities just kind of flew to that name.
0: Did you
1: immediately know it would be the title? No, um, the original title was a story title called, I Know What Makes You Come Alive. And that was the working title for a long time. And I didn't love it. It, it was, I mean, there's been this this trend towards sentence titles. And, um, and finally, I suggested to my publisher that we not do that, that we just call it by her name and they loved that.
0: Yeah. New York itself seems to be an antagonist in, in the war. I mean, I, I haven't read this yet because I just have it tonight that I remember from the collection. Um, can you talk about the place and, and how that uh, impacted the story?
1: Yeah. Um, New York in the 70s specifically is the realest place of all the places I've lived and I've lived in a lot of places and I think it's because I was a teenager. And When you're a teenager, you know, every nerve ending is alive and you're just so conscious of what's around you. And and it seems to be almost the only place I can write. I mean, I'm working on a third book and I can't get out of New York in the 70s. I can just feel it. I can see the sidewalks and I can see the like this, the way some New York City sidewalks have a sparkle to them, and I can, I can just see everything. I can see the stores and what was in the windows, and I can't see that anywhere else I've lived. Landscape of your imagination.
0: Yeah. Hi. Question to ask another. Um, you write Young Women so beautifully. I'm wondering in what you're embarking upon now. Um, is the protagonist of a woman again? And is, is she a young
1: woman? She's 28. And it's, it's hard. It's, it's progress chronologically, um, but it's difficult. There is, there is a teenage girl, but it's not from her point of view. It's from the point of view of this 28-year-old woman. And it's harder. I think part of the reason it's harder is that when you're a teenager, you get stuck in certain situations that you can't get out of. So you have both an exterior crucible and an interior crucible. And when you're 28, you can walk away from a lot of situations. So I am struggling with it a little bit. Does anyone else
0: have Yes. You said you wrote this book quickly, or the novel. What's the thing, once you were finished with, that surprised
1: you the most? Probably the method that I used. It was very different for me for the first book. Um, With the first book, I wrote the book. I wrote these stories over a five-year period. And a story would take me, I'd say, six to nine months. One story took four months. And when I finished a story, as good as I could possibly get it, um, then I would send it out to readers and starting with Jim. With this book, I would finish a draft of a story and send it out and start the draft of a second story. Send out that draft, get back the first draft and work on it. So I had, I had this juggling act going on. It was almost, it sounds frenetic, but it was, it was actually this rush of creativity and I felt very fertile. And what amazed me is that I could write a book that way.
0: Where did the
1: albino, albino character emerge from? He was a combination of two things that had nothing to do with each other. Um, The creepiness of the way he crossed her boundaries came from one source. Um, I've just always been interested in that, young girls and the crossing of body boundaries. And I knew someone in high school who was albino. And it just always interested me. And I was thinking how, what other element can I add to Gordy um, so that he's just different. It's really
0: evocative. Mm-hmm. Maxine. Yeah, I'm curious about the saint. Is that, I don't I want to call it a character, but is that
1: somebody
0: with
1: The The latter. um, I went looking for a patron saint of artists, just as Rainey did, and um, found her. And what I found was this picture that Rainey finds um, where she's old and withered, she's dead, she's mummified, is what she is, um, because she hasn't decayed. But she has kind of mummified, and she's sitting up in a chair in a convent in Italy, for real. Yes. Little, did you see her? No. No, this is just a recent thing where I found her picture in a book. Or, no, I think I found it online. And um, candles are burning at her feet, votive candles. And she's truly nut colored, mahogany colored. And, and you knew you needed
0: something like her for
1: I knew Rainey was looking for a saint, for a protect protect protectress. I love that. I just love that. You go back to me. You know she's not. She was in a draft of the book I'm writing now, and then the book kind of sprang free of her. But she's appearing to me with the baby. So, (laughs) I I think, yeah, I just think it's going to take a while for me to figure this out. Maybe book number four. Yeah, I'm sure I will. Yeah. Yeah. I can write anywhere. I, um... Say it again? No. Once I had a child, once I had a baby, I had to give up all that stuff about, oh, I must have my coffee and I must have my favorite pen from France and I must have a solid, you know, three hours in front of me. That was just gone. I can write. I could write on a bus. I can write anywhere. It doesn't mean that the words will be any good, but um, I, I can do it. So I don't I don't allow myself to have a favorite place or need a specific coffee shop or anything like that. Right now, I'm writing on my dining table because the apartment's too small for a desk. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh,
0: the size of New York I mean, Sound of like cell phone. I'm not, <laughs> going on. I'm not picking up stuff with a cell phone. That's not me. <laughs> but um, my question was, I well, one more comment. I was addressing uh, the jury my like cell phone go off during a statement to the jury. So I think I, I'm sympathetic to the cell phone going out at a long time. Anyway, uh, I <laughs> don't
1: That's a great question. I wrote these as individual short stories, but I knew that I, I had, was working into the arc of something novelistic, and it was my publisher's decision to call it a novel. When I finished, I mean, I published them in, or a number of them individually as short stories, and when I finished the manuscript, I then went back and did a ton of reweaving to create something that had a novelistic arc that where themes and objects and events recurred in a certain way so that you felt that you weren't reading something choppy. Um, And my publisher decided to call it a novel in the sense that, um, well, I don't know what Olive Kitteridge is called, but I went on Elizabeth Strout's website to see what it was called, and she calls it a book with the heft of a novel. And I guess that's how I like to think of mine. Go ahead.
0: When you went back and rewove um, those stories to bring it up into a, a novel, was that was that fun or really difficult?
1: Both. Um, I worked with one reader in particular on that, and it. It was a pleasure. I mean, it was really fun, but I had to be extremely conscious of things. For example, there's a story called Trash, um, where Rainey has an aunt who's a hoarder that she visits. And I had to go back and weave mentions of the aunt in earlier. I can't just have an aunt pop up late in the book. Um, And there are probably 50 examples like that. It was a lot of work.
0: And the beautiful cover.
1: Oh, did I get lucky or what? Oh, God,
0: it's spectacular.
1: Thank you. Where
0: did that appear
1: from? I don't know. <laughs> I can't find the designer on Facebook or anything like that to, to thank him. Thank um, I'm just very lucky. Well, we have Prosecco.
0: <laughs>
1: and cheese. If anyone would like to stay for that,
0: okay, so we have Dylan's beautifully designed and written books for sale up
1: front at the register, and we're going to have her sign book up front. So, please look around, and there is just that book. Thank you all.
0: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Young Jesus. You can check them out at youngjesus.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.